a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back. In the day when I call, this I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. To the choir master, according to do not destroy. Let's pray. Well, dear Father, we come to you through Jesus Christ, the only name that is given among men by which we must be saved. And we know that your word is more pure than silver refined seven times over. We know that your word is our treasure. It is the way in which we can love you and obey you and know your will. And we ask that this morning we would like Isaiah writes about, tremble before your word. We would bow before it and we would uh, learn. Teach us your ways and uh, do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Fear pervades our society. Over 40 million adults in the U.S. suffer from anxiety. They have been diagnosed with a panic disorder, social anxiety disorder, or post-traumatic stress disorder, just to name a few. According to Medical News Today, you may have a problem with anxiety if you experience some of these common symptoms. Feeling nervous, tense or fearful, Restlessness, panic attacks, a rapid heart rate, fast breathing or hyperventilation, sweating, shaking, fatigue, weakness, dizziness, difficulty concentrating, sleep problems, nausea, digestive issues, feeling too cold or too, cold or too hot, and uh, chest pain. More than 10 million adults in the U.S. suffer from some sort of phobia. These phobias can be of spiders, needles, Snakes, heights, social situations, or public spaces. And the market value for the drugs used to treat this, uh, disor these disorders, the market value currently stands at $3.5 billion. So to say the least, fear is a major problem for millions of people in this country. But how do we deal with this massive problem? There are usually two different approaches. Illness or ignore. Illness says, 
doctor says, this is what I have. I'll take the prescription pills and hope it gets better. It's just a medical matter, nothing more. Ignore says, admitting that I have fears would be a sign of weakness. I'll just live my life ignoring my fears and hope they'll go away. Both of these approaches fall short of the real solution. And this is because they miss the real primary diagnosis. Fear is essentially a spiritual problem. There may be additional biological factors, but at its heart, fear is fundamentally about the thoughts and beliefs of the human heart. So the solution for eliminating fear is found primarily in the Word of God. When we come to Psalm 56, David properly deals with his fear. He doesn't look at it as an illness, and he doesn't ignore it. He openly confesses his fear and admits that it is a problem. He runs to God in prayer, begging for grace, and disciplines his mind to focus upon the truth found in his word. We should take a note of another important piece of this psalm, and that is the enemies of David. Here, King Achish and his servants are, as you see in the superscript, the Philistines who seized him in Gath. They seek to bring an end to David's life, and as we will see later, only have evil thoughts which are against him. Probably no one here will be in David's situation anytime soon. But he has enemies. And if you are a Christian, you do too. But how do we know this? First, Christ warns us that we will have enemies. He says all who follow him will have opponents. Matthew chapter 10 says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Many of you, then, because of your attachment to Christ, have enemies in your own family. Remember the word of Christ in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it, it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. According to this passage, every non-Christian to one degree or another hates the Christian specifically because he loves and obeys Jesus. Second, Christ instructed us to be in prayer about this, the subject of our enemies. Our Lord Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And in John 17, he prays for his own people. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And Peter writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In light of these passages, we know that God is deeply concerned with our recognition of and deliverance from the devil. So let me suggest that if you are unaware of your enemies or you appear to have none, you are either naively ignorant or you may not even belong to Christ. 
Our Lord did say, if they hated me, they will hate you. And he said, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Christ warned us that we will have enemies, and he instructed us to be in prayer about this. For these very reasons, our study in Psalm 56 is crucial. The title then of our study this morning is Two God-Given Remedies for Fear. As many of you will likely remember, we studied Psalm 34 just a few weeks ago. I'll cover this briefly, but you can go back and listen to Jeremy's sermon if you'd like. That psalm's title indicates that it was written about the exact same event as our psalm this morning. We find this event in 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 to 15. You can turn there, please, now. Uh, By the time we come to 1 Samuel 21, David had already had to flee from Saul three times. First, David fled from Saul after playing his lyre in chapter 18. Second, he fled from Saul from his house with Michal, his new bride, in chapter 19. Third, he fled from Saul after being invited to the king's table in chapter 20. Let's read uh, in verses 10 to 15. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the son of Gath, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? As Jeremy had mentioned a few weeks back, David leaves the city of Nob, we see that in the beginning of chapter 21, alone and afraid for his life. He comes to Gath, the hometown of Goliath. He knows this would be one of the last places for Saul to visit, but because it would be the heart of enemy territory. But on the flip side, going to the king of Gath would be the worst possible way for David to preserve his life. He enters the city gates and is greeted by the servants. The servants quickly recognize who he is, take him into custody, and escort him to the king. When presenting David to Achish, they ask the king two rhetorical questions, one about kingship and another about his war skills. Is not this David king of the land? And did they not sing to one another another of him in dances? Upon hearing this, uh, fear strikes the heart of David. And this fear prompts him to change his behavior and pretend to be insane. Now, how is this insanity played out? Drool and vandalism. When you or I typically think of a way to escape trouble, it's unlikely that these two things would be the first we would choose. But amazingly, the king instructs his servants to release him, and David goes on his way, drool and all. So this is the historical context for this morning's psalm. You can turn back to uh, Psalm 56. Our first point this morning is David's request for grace. David's request for grace. We see this psalm was written by David as a miktam. There are only six miktams in the Psalter. Five of them appear in 
Psalms 56 to 60. Miktam likely means a private or personal psalm in the sense of something spoken directly to God. This psalm was published while David was king and put in the songbook of Israel based on to the choir master. There is a personal and corporate aspect to the psalm then. We have David's personal laments and the implication that all of us can relate to him and should participate in singing the psalm. The other detail of the superscript reads, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. While we have already gone to 1 Samuel 21, we should know the phrase seized him almost parallels with in their hands in chapter 21, verse 13. So this psalm could not be referencing any other Old Testament account. 1A is David begs God for pity and deliverance. Pity and deliverance. Verses 1 and 2 make up his request for grace. Be gracious to me, O God, is also found in 51 and 57. In Psalm 51, he's pleading with God for grace because of his sins, namely his sin of adultery against Bathsheba and subsequent murder of Uriah the Hittite. But here we see David begging for God to give him grace because of the desperate situation he was in. The servants of Achish had taken him into custody and closed the gates of Gath. David was locked in with nowhere to go. All hope seemed to have disappeared and David seemed to be on the cliff of death. Matthew Henry helps in writing, David in this psalm by his faith throws himself into the hands of God even when he had by his fear and folly thrown himself into the hands of the Philistines. He was pleading for God's pity and to deliver him from death. In other words, David describes his request in Psalm 34 verse six. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. We will see God answer his prayer if you look down in verse 13. You have delivered my soul from death. David understood that he needed uh, the grace of God not only for his sins but also for the trials and struggles and difficulties of life. Do you as a poor man cry to the Lord asking him to give you favor for daily life or do you deny the reality of fear and of your weaknesses? Are you pretending that life is generally something you can manage on your own strength? Are you remembering the words of our Lord in John 15, 5? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you remind yourself of the fact that we cannot work our, out our own salvation with fear and trembling unless God works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure? Because if we seek to live the Christian life by our own self-motivation, we will only prove Jesus right it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So then we should take notes from David. Ask, God's, ask God for grace to obey, to battle sin, to walk in the spirit, to love one another in this body. In all facets of the Christian life, the grace of God is needed. Next, we have David pleading during earthly danger. David pleads during earthly danger. David gives us uh, the reason why he's begging for grace. His enemies are cruel and violent toward him. He says, man tramples on me. Another way of saying this is to be crushed into submission. Says the commentator, Ross. David next describes his enemies as attackers who oppress him. The idea is, uh, of this is to squeeze or press someone in a way 
or a direction. Next, these enemies are, uh, these men, excuse me, are uh, called enemies who trample David, down in verse two. They're not just simple men, as described in verse one, they're outright adversaries. This environment was very much like Psalm 57.4, if you just look to your right. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Lastly, we see David's foes attacking him proudly. Attack is used of warfare frequently, and he would know what that looked like in light of his experience as a warrior. They do it proudly, which means, according to the commentator Plumer, from on high with a high hand or in high places or stations. The probable meaning is they fight against me from the high places of authority, both in Jerusalem and in Gath. My enemies are in power. David had been taken into custody by the servants of Achish, and they were not ignorant of his identity. They arrogantly mistreated him and forced him toward the king as with a cattle prod. Next we have his enemies constantly attack, thirsty for death. We can't forget the when of these attacks. They're all day long. Both in verses one and two, we see this phrase. At this point in the psalm, David's enemies have been oppressing him again and again and again. Their attacks have been nonstop. And this would be for one reason to bring David to his grave. The servants of Achish wanted nothing less than the death of the great warrior David who killed their champion, Goliath. We should remember that David was accustomed to this. He writes in Psalm 35, verse four, let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. And again, in chapter 38, verse 12, those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. This is one of the reasons why David already had in place a plan for dealing with fear and danger. Because it was so prevalent in his own life. We will see exactly what this plan is in our next section, which is David's remedy for fear. David's remedy for fear. This is a kind of chorus in the psalm. We'll see it again in verses 10 and 11. In these two verses, David provides our remedy for fear. But first, he admits that he has fear. When I am afraid, he openly confesses that he has it and admits it's a problem. Rather than treating it as an illness or ignoring it, David freely confesses it and then applies the God-given remedy to his fear. Next, we have his proven defense strategy, his proven defense strategy. This wasn't the first time he had encountered fear of his enemies, but he wasn't flying by the seat of his pants. Even before fear arose in his heart, he knew what to do about it. There are two examples in the Psalms that I wanna highlight. You can turn there if you'd like, or you can just listen. Psalms 13 and 27. Both are very similar to 56 in the sense that David is confronted by his enemies who seek his harm, and he is fearful. Psalm 13, verse 2, helps us to see his overwhelming fear. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? But then in verse 5, we find his defense strategy. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. 
Psalm 27 gives another example of, God, of David's good planning, this time when an army encamps against him. Verse 3 reads, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. And in verses 5 to 6, we see his trust in the Lord to deliver. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So then in Psalms 13 and 27, we have David experiencing similar fear and carrying out virtually the same plan. Next, we have details for this strategy. Details for this strategy. It's not enough, it's never enough to simply make a resolution and stop fearing. C.H. Spurgeon gives some insight here. One fire puts out another. Nothing so effectually kills the fear of man as abundance of the fear of God. Fear of man deadens conscience, distracts meditation, hinders holy activity, stops the mouth of testimony, and paralyzes the Christian's power. It is a cunning snare which some do not perceive, though they are already taken in it. His first detail is trust God. This trust is noted twice if you look down in your Bibles in verses 3 and 4. To trust God means to fix your mind upon his character and ability and to make that your confidence. When David was faced with violent Philistines who sought to end his life, he knew any confidence in man was worthless. He writes in verse 3, I will trust in you, and twice in verse 4, in God. This can be seen in Psalm 20, verse 7, this trust, where he writes, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. He doesn't trust in the ability of the chariot or horse, but he finds his confidence in the Lord. We see again uh, this trust in Psalm 31, verse 6. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. He doesn't trust in the ability of idols, but rather in the power of the Lord to save. And then we also see this trust in a different form in Psalm 52, verse 7. For those who would not make uh, God their refuge, but trusted in the abundance of their riches and sought refuge in their own destruction. So how do you trust him? Let me give you some helpful tips. Hopefully they're helpful. First, examine yourself. Detect fear when it rises up in your heart. Think of those hot button issues in your life that are triggers for fear. Ask yourself why you are entertaining fearful thoughts. Do my thoughts honor God right now? Am I viewing God as a hard taskmaster rather than a loving father? Train your mind to think upon the truth. How has God cared for me in the last few hours or days? What are some of his promises that I can lay hold of? Second, have a plan. Don't be unprepared when fear arrives. Make a plan to fight against it. That can include memorizing scripture. Take the time to write down verses about the power of God to deliver his care for you or ceaseless love for you he has in Christ. That plan can include talking with a Christian brother or a sister about your fear or reading a book like Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. Third, begin praying. 
Don't underestimate the importance of prayer. Pray by yourself about this fear. Pray with others about it and be persistent. Believing 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And when you're praying, make sure that you're trusting God in your request to help you. Don't be doubting him, thinking that he can't accomplish. The second detail to this strategy is praise his word. We see that in verse 4. David celebrated the word of God, but why? It was first and foremost because of the promised kingship. When he heard that first rhetorical question by the servants of Achish, is not this David the king of the land? This would have brought to mind the word of the Lord from Samuel that the kingdom had been given to him and ripped from the house of Saul. God's promises about the kingship were true and would not be thwarted. He trusted God to exalt him to king at the right time and to preserve him from imminent death. David also seeks to praise the written word of God. At this point in his life, he has access to at least the five books of Moses and probably Joshua. So when he praises the word he has on his mind, the faithfulness of God, the power of the word and creation. So that undergirded his strong confidence in the Lord, the power of the word of God. How about the outcome? That's our next point, the outcome of the strategy, outcome of the strategy. What can flesh do to me? That's his last statement that he makes in verse four. What can flesh do to me? We will see this question again in a slightly different form in verse 11 when we see what can man do to me? This is a sweeping statement. Not only does David say this about his enemies, Achish and his servants, but of all flesh. What can flesh do to me in light of the fact that I put my trust in God and resolve to praise his word? Absolutely nothing. But in what sense? <laughs> Seems like they can do a whole lot. In verses one and two, he talks about their ongoing trampling and oppressions. His circumstances are difficult. His, his attackers are breathing down his neck. His life is in constant danger. But as one commentator says, David's confidence was wholly in God and not at all in man. Isaiah wrote some 300 years later, emphasizing the very same truths. Isaiah 51, verses 12 to 14 says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor who sets himself to destroy and where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. Regardless of what any man would do to him, whether verbal or physical assault, David had concluded that whatever they do utterly pales in significance to God's promises and deliverance. This is also mentioned in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So when you or I are in situations that can be labeled despair, we must not allow something other than the truth to rule our minds. God and his word must take center stage. These two God-given remedies for fear then, trusting God and praising his word, if you don't take them up, you're going to experience more intensified stress. 
You're gonna harbor your, harbor your anxieties and you're gonna have a joyless Christian life. Of course, that would be horrible. <laughs> Next we have David's reasons for wrath. David's reasons for wrath. In the same way that he was concerned not with what flesh could do to him because of his confidence in God, he now turns to God to accomplish his judgment upon the people of Gath and all who would oppose him. But why would they deserve the judgment of God? David provides us with some reasons. The first one is their evil thinking and slander. Their evil thinking and slander. In verse 5, they injure David's cause. In some of your Bibles, this phrase is translated, rest my words or twist my words. Both ideas could be at play here. Rest could be understood as pervert, torture, or distort. The commentator Plumer is helpful again here. He says, it is easy by the change of a word or by tone or gesture to make men utter things which they abhor. And David says this kind of activity is going on all day long. Whether slanderous language is heard or plots to kill are created, David knows that none of the attacker's thoughts are for his good. The servants of Achish are like the enemies of David in Psalm 38, verse 2. Those who seek my life lay down their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. Verbal assault shouldn't be anything new to the Christian, though. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Remember, the enemies of the Christian are many and their hatred is real. So like 1 John 3.13 3, says, don't be surprised, brethren, that the world hates you. Secondly, we have they're waiting to kill David. They're waiting to kill David. What logically follows evil thinking and slander is a manifest desire to kill. David gives us four actions of his enemies here. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch his steps, they wait for his life. Why are they stirring up strife? Why are they lurking? Why are they watching his steps? It is for this, to take his life and shed his blood. Evil men want to end his life elsewhere. Of course, as we've noted in other sections of this psalm. Psalm 35 verse 4 says, Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. And if you're thinking, I'm still not really understanding how this is relevant to me. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, these Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Almost a thousand years after David wrote Psalm 56, sinful men were still opposing all mankind and seeking the death of the people of God. But David has a consolation, and we see that in uh, verse 7. God's unavoidable judgment. God's unavoidable judgment. David says that God's present in his life not only to comfort him, but also to judge his persecutors. He says, for their crime will they escape? Of course, the answer is no. 
Sinful men and women will never go unpunished. It's not true that you can just eat, drink, and be merry, and then you'll just kind of become part of the earth or have a second incarnation as a worm or something. There will be a judgment. Psalm 96 verse 13 says, He comes for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Psalm 7 says, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Our next point is the Lord's regard for David. The Lord's regard for David. David makes a great contrast between God's actions toward the unrepentant and those who trust in him. In verses 8 and 9, we're going to see are laced with, God, with the Lord's regard for David, his care, his concern, his love. The first point is God remembers David's wanderings and tears. God remembers David's wanderings and tears. David makes three statements in verse 8. The first one is, you kept count of my tossings. To keep count can be understood as to take account of, take account of or pay attention to. And a, another commentator says, this clause is a grateful recognition of God's kindness up to this hour and implies confidence that it will be continued. God is well aware of David's struggles with the servants of Achish. He is well aware of David's fear and desperation. The second statement David makes is, put my tears in your bottle. In verse 3, David openly confessed that he was afraid. Here, he openly confesses that he shed multiple tears. So it's not true that real men don't cry. But those tears are not overlooked. They are not forgotten by God. One commentator says, here lies a powerful consolation that God gathers up such tears and puts them in, into his bottle. Just as one would pour precious wine into, into a flagon, so precious and dear are such tears before God, and God lays them up as a treasure in the heavens. The third statement David makes concerns the book of God. God also has a book in Malachi 3.16. It's called a book of remembrance. And of this book, one commentator says, there is no forgetfulness in God. He bears in his own eternal mind a remembrance of the persons, thoughts, words, and actions of his people in which he will disclose and make mention of another day. So God has an unforgettable record of the struggles and difficulties the people of God have endured. Next point is God preserves David. God preserves David. God doesn't stop at only remembering the tears and prayers of his people. He is relentless to preserve them, to care for them, to love them. One of the primary ways that God cares for his people is through bringing final judgment upon their persecutors. And the reason is that the enemies of God's people are the enemies of God. If you can remember Saul being confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, why are you persecuting me? The two are not divorced. <clears throat> David writes in verse 9, Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. Remember, David had already seen God deliver him from Saul on three separate occasions. When he was playing the lyre, when he was with his wife um, Michal, and then when he was at the king's table or was invited to the king's table with Saul. 
Now he can look with confidence into the future, knowing that God will judge just as he did in Psalm 31, verse 23. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. And it's very interesting that the prayers for judgment that David made with tears will ultimately come to pass. Listen to Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We find out in Revelation 6 that those prayers are answered in a magnificent way when the Lord unloads his wrath upon all his enemies. David's enemies and our enemies will soon be crushed under our feet, just like Satan. Secondly, we have God preserving David as his saint, as his saint. He says, this I know that God is for me. David had taken refuge in God. He had trusted in him. And he writes of that same status of his sainthood in Psalm 37. I have been young and now am old. I have seen the righteous, I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously to his children and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The Lord sees his own covenant people then as his children. They are the righteous. They are the, one, the ones whom he preserves forever. And we were here a few weeks ago, but I'll go back to it. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, Paul highlights the very same privileges for his saints. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So whether the servants of Achish are seeking the destruction of David or the Jews in Thessalonica are seeking to kill Paul just like they did the Lord Jesus and the prophets, we know this. God is for us and nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ because we are his saints. Next, we have David's remedy for fear reaffirmed. David's remedy for fear reaffirmed. So, of course, those are comforting thoughts regarding uh, the Lord's regard for David, his care, his love, his concern. But he, uh, David returns to, to the chorus of the psalm. He almost says the same thing that he does in verses 3 and 4. Rather than disregarding or allowing fear to uh, be treated like an illness, David again takes up the proper treatment that God has supplied. But I want to point you to two differences in this, between this section and verses 3 to 4. The first is that the word is mentioned twice here in verse 10. Both times David praises the word. This boasts of the fact that David saw the word as the primary means of knowing and loving him. Without the word, there would be no covenant relationship between God and his people. No promises to hold on to and no judgments to look forward to. A second difference is, uh, lies in the fact that rather than using Elohim, meaning uh, just plain old G-O-D, God, as he does every other time in the psalm, David uses Yahweh, the covenant name of God. One commentator says, this makes clear that Yahweh is the source of the psalmist's confidence. So through turmoil and fear of his life, David had a constant refrain, and the refrain was this, I will trust God and praise his word. Our last point is David's resolve for thanksgiving. David's resolve for thanksgiving. 
In this last section, we discovered that uh, what we had noted at the beginning, and that is that God had marvelously answered David's begging for pity and deliverance. He had rescued him from the hand of the servants of Achish. He had used David's pathetic plan to act insane for his glory. And it should be a little side note, don't try this at home. So you shouldn't be acting insane just in hopes that God would rescue you. We can imagine David singing an internal song of thanks after he heard Achish say in 1 Samuel 20, 21, 15, Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? And then after, of course, King Achish uh, sent him away, David was singing probably an external song of thanks when he departed from there. Now, can you give thanks to the Lord today? Has he delivered you from the jaws of death? Or can you say with the psalmist, praise the Lord, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. If you are in Christ, he has rescued you from his wrath. He's brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He has delivered you from a life full of lies and deceit, self-righteousness and materialism, loving self and serving the devil. He has removed his wrath by the propitiation of his son and given you peace with him. He has caused you to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And he has given you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Can we not all say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Wow. Next, we have David's obligation to make vows. David knows that, uh, of course, Thanksgiving is not to be confined to just singing a little ditty as he goes away from Gath. Um, he needs to make vows. Of course, he's allowed to do that. Deuteronomy 23, 21 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. So that's why he says, I must perform my vows. He's made a vow to God, and he must fulfill them, otherwise he's going to be guilty of sin. The next uh, point we have is God's deliverance of David from death. We find an almost identical phrase in Psalm 116, verse 8. You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. God delivered David not from mere physical harm. God delivered David from death. And the author of Hebrews describes Jesus in a very similar way. He says this, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his, because of his reverence. Jesus made prayers and supplications, just like David. Jesus cried out to God and shed tears, just like David. Jesus knew God was able to save him from death, just like David. And Jesus revered God, trusting him and praising his word, just like David. Both David and our Lord and Savior were in similar situations of turmoil, and God delivered them both. Next, we have David's freedom to walk before God in life. Why did God deliver him from death? It was to walk before him in the light of life. Now, did anybody else walk before God in this way, in the way that David wrote? Listen to what Jacob says to his son Joseph when he blesses him at the end of his life. Genesis 48, 15, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. God was Jacob's shepherd. Jacob walked before God. And he says Abraham and Isaac walked before God in this way too. Well, did David actually walk before God this way? 
throughout the uh, end of his life? Listen to Second Chronicles 6.16. This is Solomon's temple dedication prayer. Now therefore, O Lord, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father, whom uh, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Solomon then describes his father as someone who walked before the Lord God in his law. Now what's your legacy going to be? After your life is all said and done, what's your family and your friends going to say of you? They're going to say what they said, they said of David? Are they going to remember you as somebody who walked in the law of God? Somebody who dealt with your fears by trusting in God and praising His Word? You have three options. You can treat your fear as an illness. You can ignore your fear. Or you can treat it as a spiritual problem that has a proven scriptural solution. I pray that God helps you to know that solution and apply it so you can find ultimate freedom from fear and trust in God. I'll invite the worship team up and uh, let's pray. Dear Father, we do praise your name for your word. We thank you that it is profitable for all things in the Christian life and we know that it is profitable and the Bible is able to teach us. You are able to teach us through your word about fear and to train us to not fear and trust in you in whatever circumstance we are in. So help us to not forget uh, these truths in the coming days and weeks. Help us to grow in godliness and ultimately as we learned at the end of this to become like our Lord Jesus Christ who did go to you in prayer and beg you for grace because he knew that you were able to deliver him from death. And so we uh, ask this in Jesus' name, amen.